Shinzo Abe is now closer than ever to his goal of becoming Japan's longest-serving prime minister. Shinzo Abe, who is now the longest-serving prime minister of Japan with 2,887 days in the prime minister's chair. In November of 2019, Abe Shinzo became the longest-serving prime minister in post-war Japanese history. Known for his Abenomics policy designed to stimulate the economy, Abe was elected to his second stint as prime minister in 2012 running on the platform slogan Nippon o Torimodosu, or Take Back Japan. The slogan encapsulated a platform of hope and optimism, anticipating Japanese recovery from two decades of economic stagnation known as the Lost Decades. How was Abe able to inspire optimism amongst the Japanese electorate despite the economic stagnation of the Lost Decades? How has Abe embraced Japanese pop culture in order to retain the Prime Minister's office longer than any of his predecessors? What explains Abe's continued personal popularity, and where does he fit within the longer history of post-war Japanese politics? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the administration of Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, I talked with Dr. David Leoni, professor in the Graduate School of Asia-Pacific Studies at Waseda University. Dr. Laini is the author recently of Empire of Hope, The Sentimental Politics of Japanese Decline, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Dr. Laini, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Your recent book, Empire of Hope, details how Japanese politics has been increasingly filled with sentimentality and emotional rhetoric, much like Abe's platform. Can you talk about how Abe's platform fits into what you call the Empire of Hope, and how he was able to translate emotion into what is now the longest administration in post-war Japan? Yeah, thanks for the question. I'm not sure that I think that Japanese politics has been increasingly filled with emotion. It's more that emotion itself is something that democratic governments increasingly feel that they have to actually deploy in order to stay in power. And I think we see this with the LDP going back probably about 20 years. And I think that that would probably be dated from the electoral reform of the early 90s when LDP hegemony had sort of fallen apart and there was concern about maintaining leadership in the Japanese polity. You know, Prime Minister Koizumi himself was pretty adept at this. He may not have used the same language as Prime Minister Abe, but certainly in referring to the way he himself was going to rebuild Japan and that he was going to change the LDP in order to change Japan, there was the sense in which the nation's hopes could be attached to this one particular individual. And I think that Abe has sort of capitalized shrewdly on this, both as a way of placing himself at the center of Japanese politics, but also by suggesting that it's the sort of emotional connection of the Japanese people to the future of the country that ought to elevate him and, and, keep, and keep him and the LDP in power. More than anything else, I just think that when we talk about emotion, it's important to go you know beyond the, the typical ways that we do it in political science, where we we tend to think about anger or anxiety or fear, and instead think about how emotional rhetoric gets used in political discourse. And, you know, I think Abe is an excellent and very successful case of this, uh, someone who's really deployed an idea about the country's future as the way of justifying his, his continued leadership of the country. And you mentioned Abe being at the center. And you know, speaking of this, one place where Abe really stands alone in, in the center is on the cover of your book. And I wanted to mention how much I like this uh, image on the cover of your book, which is a photograph of Prime Minister Abe taken at the closing ceremonies of the 2016 Rio Olympics. 
where he's dressed up as Super Mario to promote the 2020 Olympics. And, you know, something was very perplexing to me about this photo. And I realized what was perplexing about it is that we have, you know, Abe's representing the kind of two sides of Japan, I think. You could say, well, on the one side, it's Abe as Mario representing the popular side, Nintendo, Cool Japan, video games, manga, anime, you know, in other words, soft power. But at the same time, you know, I was also reminded that, you know, according to one 2015 poll of South Koreans, Abe was the most disliked of all global leaders, even more so than North Korea's Kim Jong-un. So while we have Abe as Mario, we also have Abe as menace. And so the picture kind of embodied for me this uneasy duality of Abe as prime minister and, and even of Japan's position of the world. It's cute and funny all at the same time. And in your book, you talk about, you know, one of the things that Japan's trying to do is force a smile in the hope that the world will smile back. And I love the way you phrase that. So I guess my question is, you know, how does Abe fit into this? And is the world smiling back? When Abe first became prime minister in 2006, I, you know, I remember that very clearly that moment. And I didn't predict that his tenure at that time would be as short as it was, but certainly no one envisioned him as the quasi fun loving pop culture maven that he's now being positioned as being in global affairs as well as at home. And so the incongruity of it is fascinating to me as well. I'm just stunned at the way in which he's kind of rebranded himself over the past 15 years as a very different type of leader than the one who first rose into national prominence in the in the early 2000s as a champion of the abductees issue. That's the, the issue of Japanese who had been abducted by North Korea and the North Korean government had denied it for years. It was long a sort of a conspiracy theory among the Japanese right. And yet Prime Minister Koizumi, partly under pressure from the family members, as well as from Mr. Abe himself, was the one who actually was able to secure the acknowledgement from Kim Jong-il that there had been abductions and the return through a variety of different complicated negotiations of a number of the abductees. And so, you know, Abe himself had positioned himself as very much the, the strong nationalist who was protecting Japanese from the outside world. He rode to the prime ministership largely on the backs of that. And then such a dud, so uncharismatic, so problematic as a leader, so ineffective at leading the party that he basically fell from power in a year. So he returns a decade later is in a relatively strong position, but also doesn't just brand himself as a nationalist leader, but is the one who actually catches what Japan is, which is this creative country, this country of vibrant popular culture, of anime and so forth, and wants to push that on the global stage. It's, it's a really fascinating combination. I think in part, it reflects this problematic notion of soft power, the one that you mentioned in your question. As I've made clear in my book, I'm, I'm a critic of the concept in the first place. You know, it emerged from American political science in the late 1980s. Joseph Nye, who's a political scientist at Harvard, was really trying to explain why the United States was still going to remain a preeminent power, despite its then apparent economic decline vis-a-vis -vis powerful trading countries like West Germany and Japan. And his argument was that unlike Japan, especially Japan, the United States was you know, open, liberal, had its popular culture of tentacles as well as its messaging all around the world. And because of that, America had the ability to persuade other countries about its foreign policy because people were so attracted to American values. And this argument was one that got picked up widely by a lot of journalists, by a lot of former diplomats, people in policy schools, but was never taken all that seriously by political scientists because it's, it's like an impossible thing to test. Like, How do you know if a country actually has soft power? And yet it emerges in Japan in the early 2000s with, when anime becomes extremely well-recognized on the global stage. It becomes this like moment in which Japan itself 
is going to reemerge from the collapse of the bubble economy from its long two decades of economic decline. It's going to reemerge because of the popularity of its cultural products overseas, that everybody likes Japan, everybody's attracted to Japan, everybody knows Super Mario, everybody likes Ghibli movies, everybody likes Doraemon, etc. And that because of all that, Japan itself is going to reemerge with global power, even though there's like no evidence at any time anywhere in the world that this stuff actually matters. And so it's a really fascinating just idea. And I think partly what motivated Abe to think in these terms is that it's so attractive as an idea, right? I mean, it's something people want to know that our values are the ones that people around the world respect, that they love, that they find attractive. And that as people get to know the real Japanese, the creators, the innovators who are out there building these awesome pop culture products, that Japan itself is going to benefit from this, that, that the country's fortunes, our nationalist fortunes are deeply connected with the independence and creativity of the Japanese people. So it's an attractive set of messages and I can see why it's popular. It's just that there's no evidence it actually matters. And so there is this weird set of issues with the idea of soft power in the first place. And to me, this like crystallized at this moment, like when he did that, I was flabbergasted. I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was kind of taken aback at the audacity of it. I was, I thought it was hilarious. I was very impressed, but I also just thought this is utterly bananas. And speaking of Abe kind of embracing this pop culture element of Japan, I, I was struck by a number of recent political ads on TV in Japan promoting the LDP and arguably Abe himself as the face of a quote new generation in Japan. And this gets back to what you're talking about as well, about this personal connection between political leaders like Koizumi or Abe and the nation. But in these ads, Abe, you know, he, he appears in his formal business suit and he's kind of awkwardly grouped with several very hip teenagers. You know, one's a rapper, one's an artist, one rides BMX, one's a dancer. And the voiceover over these very cool images is, you know, these kids sharing their frustrations of people holding them back, talking about their aspirations over this hip hop soundtrack. One of them wants to always be herself, another wants to be treated as an equal regardless of age, another to be a force in the world. And then Abe comes on and concludes the ad with Mirai o Tsukuritai, saying he wants to build the future as the words new generation flash across the screen. And when I first saw this, I was thinking, oh, well, you know, of course, the LDP lowered the voting age from 20 to 18 to capture more of a younger generation that recent opinion polls suggest is skewing more socially conservative. But it's also happening within the context of another LDP strategy to promote Abe as proudly and confidently leading Japan into a more interventionist and strong position in global politics. And so I guess what's striking to me then is that not only does it seem in Congress to equate a 64-year-old politician to a group of hip teenagers and say that he is part of a new generation. But as you were suggesting, it, it creates this kind of conflation between Abe, an individual, and Japan as a nation, almost a kind of cult of personality, you might say. Great question. Um, a few years ago, actually, during the Koizumi years, this was something that people talked about quite a lot. A couple of colleagues in the political science world, especially Ellis Krauss and Robert Pekinen, were talking about whether or not Japan was becoming more like a presidential system that in which people really focus on the personality of the prime minister. You know, for, for years, the prime minister was just this sort of colorless suited figure who was in charge of the government. But everyone knew that the prime minister's power was pretty limited, that it really was managing the LDP and the relationship between the LDP and the public administrative apparatus of the state. Whereas, especially after the electoral reform of the 1990s, as well as various efforts by the LDP to sort of seize more control from the administrators, we see a little bit more attention to the personality of the prime minister. And 
Koizumi himself was really a master at this. And Abe, of course, is thrust into this position of trying to do that, even though he's not charismatic. Um, and I'm not saying that to be unkind to him, but I think probably the ad itself, that ad you're talking about, it's partly a joke in the sense that it's obvious that he's dorky, right? Because they even like point out Seiji got like 64 years old, right? I mean, they basically like hammer home like what, what, like that he's a nerd who doesn't actually belong with these, these teenagers. And he's almost there as this like kindly grandfather who is tolerating their individuality, but doesn't really get it. But, you know, he's the sort of guy you can trust because he's there. So, you know, in terms of the cult of personality, I don't think there's any risk that that's really going to happen with Abe per se. I mean, there isn't the sort of fanaticism about Abe that one gets with Trump in the United States, for example. And and he doesn't have the charisma of someone like Obama or anyone like that. Well, I think there's there's two things going on with regard to the focus on the teenagers, even though they lowered the voting age, the kids in the ad were mostly like 15, right? And 16. So they can't even vote anyway. And in other words, it's one of the it's like one of those ads where it's not about the people in the ad. It's about what they represent for everyone else. This is like an effort to convince some people who are in their 30s or something. It's like, yeah, maybe they're stodgy, but maybe they're actually okay. Like we can continue to vote for them because, you know, the. You're right that the popularity of Abe and the LDP is a little bit higher among younger people than it is among middle-aged people. But that's also balanced out by different voting rates, right? Young people also tend to vote a lot less than older people do. And so I think partly the use of young people in the ads is meant to kind of symbolize something about what Abe is for the country and that the country itself is changing and it's okay. And the way in which that ad kind of positions the individuality of the people seems to me to be targeted at people of that generation, like people in the 30s who, you know, wants to imagine that that's what Japan is and ought to be. And having Abe talk about this with younger people, I imagine, is partly targeted at those slightly older folks to get them to sort of connect Abe to the idea that. Although Abe is old and stodgy, he himself is connected to a more creative, vibrant Japan that ought to be more assertive in global affairs. And so I think that that's sort of what that ad's doing. There's no question that on the the flip side of that is the other thing you mentioned, which is that for Abe, clearly for Abe, and I think for many others in the LDP and some of the opposition parties, is that a more assertive Japan is one that is more assertive on the global stage. And that the way that you know that the country is respected is because of the amount of respect that is paid to it by other leaders around the world. And so I think for Abe, you know, the relationships he has with people like President Trump or, or Prime Minister Modi, that these are kind of the, the big issues, I think, for how he wants to present himself as the best leader for Japan. The image we get of Abe in the ad is as grandfatherly, maybe a paternalistic protector, a strong leader. This is often the image of Abe that we get in opinion polls, right? And this speaks to another seeming incongruity in perceptions of Abe. According to earlier domestic public opinion polls, at one time, many of Abe's policies, such as the three arrows or other policies, were very unpopular. Only 38% thought Abenomics would work, 80% opposed the state secrets law, 61% opposed changing Article 9, 50% opposed any changes to the Constitution. Nonetheless, Abe's personal popularity was still 62% at the time. Add to this the fact that the LDP swept the 2016-2017 elections and even held supermajorities in both houses of parliament until the recent 2019 lower house election. One common explanation for this discrepancy between the lack of popularity of Abe's policies but his personal popularity is that people saw him as this kind of strong leader that you were just talking about. And so I'm curious, you know, is, is the answer really this simple or 
you know, are there other explanations for why Abe remains such a personally popular figure? So this is one of these times where I feel torn between my real discipline of political science and the discipline I read a lot of, which is anthropology, which is, of course, in anthropology, it's like the answer is never that simple. Whereas in political science, like, no, we need a simple answer. I, I actually think that's actually a big part of it, the way you frame it. I think that the idea that he's a strong leader plays a big role. But the other thing, too, is just that the opposition forces have been really, really demoralized and put in difficult position both within the party and outside of the party. I mean, when he gets those high public opinion polls, it's not just because people love him, but rather because it's not like there's any really apparent challengers to him at the moment, right? I mean, within the party, the other leaders of the LDP are either sort of older figures who are seen with the same kind of skepticism that I think Abe himself might be or there are younger upstarts who haven't really made their mark on the political stage enough to, to really challenge him in terms of visibility. And then the, the opposition parties, I think, are so fractured and often internally incoherent that it makes it hard for any of their leaders to get the kind of capital that he's got. So it's not that I, I don't want to give him credit for those numbers. It's just that I think there's a lot of institutional factors that weigh into that. You mentioned previous prime ministers who were quite well known on the global stage, such as Nakasone Yasuhiro, Koizumi Junichiro. Another one that comes to mind is Tanaka Kakue. These were all prime ministers well known, associated with large scale plans. Historians tend to not look too far into the distant future. So I want to ask you what Abe's future legacy will be. But I, I wonder already, are you seeing some kind of narratives emerging about Abe's tenure and how now that he's the longest serving prime minister, how can we put him into this long sweep of post-war Japanese history, including some of these other major prime ministers? Yeah, you know, I think that the narrative is one that he himself hasn't created. It's one that he's just helped to try to promote and continue, which is the idea of Japan's rebirth, right? I mean, he uses that language pretty explicitly, but it, it was used even earlier under Koizumi and so forth. But the idea that during the post-war, Japan rebuilt itself from the ashes of defeat in a way that no other country in history ever had, developing more quickly than any other country had, and becoming a leader of Asia because of its commitment to peace and well, as well as its, its understanding of the rules of economic development and technological skill, and that these things would be the things that would sort of propel Japan into the future. But somehow, whether it's because of greed or materialism or whatever, Japan lost its way, it got too close to the sun like Icarus, it fell to earth through the collapse of the bubble and so forth, that there was something that actually Japan failed at and lost its opportunity to rebuild itself. And, you know, Tomiko Yoda at Harvard wrote about this a number of years ago in a book she did with Harry Haratunian called Japan After Japan, in which she said that one of the anxieties that emerges in the 1990s is this question of whether or not Japan has the agency, the, the collective ability to kind of rebuild its master narrative. And I think that what we've seen since that time is an effort to suggest that we, we Japanese somehow, as we've done in the past, we collectively did it in the past, we will collectively rebuild Japan in the future. And this is what Abe really is skillful at, I think, or his team is skillful at, which is sort of making him the embodiment of the Japanese people who are getting their mojo back and are working on this together, right? There's this idea of a collective spirit even as his own sort of need to, to focus on neoliberal economic reform still ends up focusing upon individual creativity that will drive this, right? So it's a, this sort of interesting combination of individual effort that leads to collective 
cooperation that's going to rebuild Japan. And I think that this story is there. And I don't know that he's reshaped that dramatically. But if the Japanese economy continues to perform reasonably well, or at least no worse than any other regional economies, if Japan emerges as a more trusted global leader 10 years from now than, say, China or other potential regional rivals, I think that that's probably the way he'll be remembered. And in fact, he may be remembered as the embodiment of that drive. But I think that the focus itself is going to be not so much on what he did personally, but more on what Japan did with him as being the custodian of that. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.